The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a five-star rating so that when people search Google for podcasts about addiction, ours will come up and hopefully they will get help. Please also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a thumbs up on our videos and ring the bell so that you will be notified when we have new videos that go up. Today's episode is episode number 296. And today we have an interview with a gentleman named Roger Smith. By the time Roger Smith was a teenager, he was living on the streets of Santa Monica and addicted to drugs. He dropped out of high school, ran into trouble with the law, had his best friend shot right next to him. And at one point, he was so down and out and desperate for a fix in his early 30s that he walked into the Pacific Ocean expecting never to come back. Being an entrepreneur as a young child selling comic books on the streets of New York, he was no stranger to hard work and sales. He ascended the corporate ladder to become the CEO of American Income Life Insurance Company, National Income Life Insurance Company, and Liberty National Life Insurance Company. He's also the recipient of the Yitzhak Rabin Legacy Award, Eleanor Roosevelt Human Rights Award, Healthcare for All Champion Award, Saul Stein Award, as well as numerous other awards and publications. He's the father of five adult children, proud grandfather of Maggie May, and currently resides in Florida with his wife, Demi, and his two dogs, Penelope and Chrome. Without further ado, let's talk to Roger Smith. Roger Smith, thank you so much for being willing to share your story with us. I'm looking forward to hearing your story and talking a little bit about your book. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. I, I appreciate it. Well, I'm excited to have you. I was reading your bio and it said that you were selling comic books on the streets of New York as a young child. So take me back to your childhood. Let's start at the beginning. Tell me how you grew up. Uh, you know, I was I was a pretty independent kid. My uh, my dad went to jail when I was three years old. Uh, my mom, you know, single head of household with three kids, so um, I was pretty independent. And uh, I I grew up in New York City. Um, my mom had remarried, and back then, if if your family went bankrupt on the East Coast, you went as far west as you could go, and ended up going from Manhattan to Malibu. <laughs> Malibu at that time was, it was, you know, all apartment beach shacks. There was a few big homes, but the majority of it were, were uh, just a little apartments and so on. So I was going to say, I mean, I don't know how you could afford to live in Malibu if you were having financial difficulties because nobody can live there now unless they're bazillionaires. I, listen, I, I live, there's 13 different apartments that we lived in. And none of them are still there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Understood. Yes. Okay. But when you were, you, I love the idea that you were selling comic books and you were doing that in New York, right? How old were you doing that? Probably six years old. I, you know, I, I remember that I was always kind of, you know, hustling for a buck very young. It didn't matter if I, you know, 
selling comic books or, or walking dogs or, you know, whatever. I was always looking for a buck. Um, I remember that I would walk from, at that time, we were living on the west side, but I, uh, I lived on the east side. And I'd be walking across Central Park with my trombone. And, uh, of course, at least three or four times, there I was for the trombone. Uh, the school <laughs> me the instruments. But, you know, it was all, you know, I look back now and go, wow, I would never let my kid do that. <laughs> but you know, that, that was the time then. I was going to say, different times. Yeah. So how did you get introduced to drugs, Roger? So um, it's interesting because up until the age of 14, I, I think I was like this, I was this pretty good kid. You know, I was the, like the star of the junior high musical and uh, I was in the woodworking club and the chess club. You know, I got B's and C's, not necessarily A's, but, but really pretty good kid. The summer before my 15th birthday, um, the hippie movement was just starting and man, I was just looking for my tribe and, and there was just a, a switch that flipped and I went from that, which I just described to a year later, uh, being homeless, a drug addict and a high school dropout. So it was it was a quick decline. It wasn't like, okay, this took you. It, it was, it was very quick. It was very quick. Wow. And so it sounds like not to evaluate, but it sounds like you felt more at home with that group than you had prior. Cause you said when you found your tribe, there you yeah. were. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Did your mom know? Um, yeah. Yeah. My mom knew. And, but at the, by that point I was, I was uncontrollable. You know, I couldn't, I even, my mom even had my, my biological father come out and try to talk to me and, you know, and talk to me about, you know, you're getting in trouble and so on. And uh, I didn't have any type of relationship with him, but he said to me, he says, you know, your sister and your brother, they're, they're made for college, you know, maybe you should just like go into a trade school. And it's amazing how. Um, you know, I had no relationship with Scott. There's no reason why that should have been an influence, but it was. It was. And how never, would he know? He hadn't even lived with you. I agree. I agree. Uh, but for some reason, I did let him influence me. And uh, yeah, thus the title of the book, The Most Unlikely Leader, An Unbelievable Journey from GED to CEO, because I never, you know, never went to college. Right. What um, what drugs were you doing, Roger? I started off on, uh, it was like a solvent. It was called toluene. And they actually used it to like to clean the barnacles off the boats. Yes. And started off with that. Um, we had a friend that was working on the dock of a hospital and you know was stealing like vials of morphine uh -huh. so we we very quickly went you know from that into morphine then into heroin um downers you know all all of that stuff right 
And so at that point, you were homeless, did you say? Yeah. So at that point, I was kind of on the streets. Yeah. Okay. And what happened then? Because I think you had kind of a traumatic thing happen um, during these years. So, I mean, yeah, listen, there's a lot of times where I should have hit bottom. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I, I can't, I don't know why I did it, but I didn't. And uh, at one point it was me and my friend and we're, we're um, walking down, we're in front of a, uh, a pawn shop. And he actually grabs a trash can, breaks the window, grabs a watch or something. We start running down the street. And we didn't know that the pawn shop owner was actually in the shop. And he came out and we're running and he shot uh, my friend dead, you know. <sighs> and he kept running. And, um, yeah, it, it's... But that wasn't rock bottom, right? No. In fact, you know, I was a functioning addict. I was a functioning addict for 20 years. Wow. So, you know, un, un, unfortunately, I was pretty good at at achieving success and mm. still able to keep my addiction going. So why why get clean and sober? I get it. I mean, if you can function with it and still be successful, it's like, why bother? So at what point did you have that kind of moment where you said, okay, I need to get clean and sober. When did that happen? Well, first of all, it, none of it was sustainable. Okay. So I would have success. I would self-destruct. I would have success. I would self-rebuild, self-destruct. It was that type of cycle. Yeah. Uh, but there was a point where um, I'm in a little cottage in Malibu and I'm on all fours and I'm looking through the carpet for for a sliver of crack cocaine that I may have dropped. And it wasn't for moments. I mean, I'm talking about for hours. And and finally, I just thought, man, this is, you know, I, I don't want to live if this is what life's about. My picture of myself, that deep picture that's inside that nobody else could see, you know, mm -hmm. was, you know homeless, a drug addict, old. And and I decided right then I'd just walk downstairs and, and walk into the ocean. Thankfully, um, you know, I I I didn't, and uh, I ended up going into rehab the next day. And uh, and back then, you know, it wasn't like it is today. It wasn't easy finding rehabs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, few and far between, and I yep. ended. Um, taking a uh, plane, then a bus into Northern California and and attended a rehab there. Okay. So how old were you when you finally did this, when you finally got into rehab? 35. Wow. Yeah. Now, you, you part of your career is you were a very successful CEO of huge companies. Was this after that? It was after it. Okay. So, you, you know, Sorry, I was just going to say, so you went to rehab. Did you stay clean and sober at that point? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, I kept that picture of who I was at the very last forefront in my mind. It, it's still forefront in my mind. Mm. I just, I never wanted to, I never wanted to go back there. I never wanted to be that person again. Right. Right. But interesting that. We spend, as an addict, we spend so much energy 
taking care of our addiction. Mm-hmm. And when you get clean, you still have the same energy. It's just now you can devote that into something that's positive and productive instead of devoting it into something that's negative. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I know we've had people um, talk on the podcast about how you need to approach your sobriety and your recovery with the same intention and chutzpah and, you know, courage and strength, what have you, that you approached your addiction. Like that amount of energy, you need to then put it into fixing your life and not destroying your life. Yeah, I I agree. It was funny because... When I got out of rehab, you know, I figured I, I had 20 years of, of addictive habits there. And so, like, the first thing I did is whatever, whatever I was doing, I was going to do. So if, if I put on my right shoe first, I was going to put on my left shoe first. You know, uh, I, uh, I, I was going to do the left. Whatever I had been doing, I really needed to do the opposite because... Right. Whatever I was doing before was a part of my addiction. So yep. change, you know, and I did. Yep. I think that's uh that's that's a that's a good philosophy. I like that philosophy. Like whatever, however you approach life as an addict, approach it the opposite as someone in recovery or a sober person, and and there you go. I think that's huge. I mean, I think that's a good message. So Okay, but you're retired now, right? You went up and you became heads of all these big companies. Yep. And when did you write this book? So I wrote it uh, about, I started it about four years ago. Okay. I published it at the end of May. Okay. And yeah. and does the book talk about uh, about your life as an addict? Does it talk about that part of your life? It does. I, it was... Um, yeah, I just wanted to be kind of brutally honest about where I came from and and what my story was. So, you know, it's a memoir. Um, it also talks about my successes and my failures in business, but it talks, you know, it talks about it. I, I uh, you know, it's funny you ask that question because if you write like a fiction book and yeah. somebody says, you know, if you ask them, hey, did you like the book? And they go, not really. Well, it's, you may be di- disappointed, but it's not the end of the world. When you write a story about your life and you ask somebody, did you like the book? And they go, uh, not really. You go, wait, that's my life? Like <laughs> Man, yeah. So it really puts you in a very vulnerable position, but it's a position that I think I needed to get to because there's a lot of people that are stuck in their life. There's a lot of people that even though um, they're sober, they, they just think at this point, you know, they, the deck is stacked against them. They got so many things that happened in their past that they're not going to be able to overcome it and, 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 and have a, a successful future. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 
314-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And, you know, the purpose of me writing that was to show, well, no, that's not necessarily the case. You can. You can. You can have all these things against you and still be prosperous, still, you know, be successful. It's just harder. I think that, I, yeah, I think that's huge. What you said that one of the successful actions that you had was, you know, if you put on the right shoe when you were an addict, you put on the left shoe first, you know, when you were clean. What what were some other like philosophies that you used to get to where you were? I mean, you were the CEO of major life insurance companies. Yeah. People, even people who aren't recovered, you know, don't make it there. So, what were some of the successful things that you would share? That's um, so. There's a, there's a couple of them. I mean, one is that I was not naturally good at any of these things. It's not like I was a natural born salesperson or a natural born leader or a natural born CEO. Okay. So in fact, it's quite the opposite. You know, I just had to work harder than most people to be able to achieve some of these things. But you know how like you're told or you said it yourself, you know, don't burn your bridges. And and I subscribe to a philosophy that says burn every damn one of them. And <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do you mean by that? I mean, give me an example there, Roger. I'm having trouble with that one. I don't mean relationship, unless you want to burn it. <laughs> what I mean is that many of us, we have like in the back of our mind a plan B or an escape patch. You know, we say to ourselves, well, if this doesn't work, I'll do this. Right. Is it's amazing at how many people give up on their dreams when they hit this obstacle that that seems so insurmountable. And in my mind, I'm sitting there going, you know what? I'm burning that bridge behind me. There, there's no way I'm going backwards. The only way I'm going is forward. And if it's burned behind me, I don't have that temptation. I can only move forward. And it is amazing how how creative you get with perseverance, you know, when you hit that wall to go around it, go over it, go through it. But it's amazing how you get over on the other side. And then years later, you look back and go, okay, well, that was a bump in the road, right? <laughs> yep. All it was, was a bump in the road because you're still going to have more of those walls and obstacles in front of you. You know, I, that's fascinating that you put it that way, Roger, because also if you look at it, so I'm a dry, drug addict and I have to get my next fix, you know, and I'm going to do all sorts of things to make sure that I get that fix. And 
I, just like I said before, and I know I'm repeating myself, if I then approach my recovery and approach my sobriety and approach life after drugs or alcohol with that viewpoint, I think I, I think anybody listening could definitely, definitely be successful, you know, in recovery. Yeah. You know, somebody had said that to me at one time when I was on a podcast and they said, you know, do you think that being an addict contributed to you being successful, some of the things, you, and I and I sat there. And I was kind of like shocked by the yep. question. Yep. But up until that point, I would have said no, and then I thought about. It, I said, yeah, you know, there are many things that I did as an addict that, once in a productive, positive way, you know, reaped so many benefits. So you know, I. I I do agree with you now. I think that's right. Yeah. Yep. And and the only other thing I would disagree with one thing you said, and that you said you weren't good at sales, but if you were on the street selling comic books at six years old, I beg to differ with you. I am fairly certain you sold some of those comic books. So you might've had a little bit of an ability to sell Roger. Yeah, I might've, but let me tell you something. When I started selling, you know how, like they say, when you, when you are in a sales, when you close, you say your closing line and then you shut up. And then you know, the first person talks is the one that's buying, right? I would shut up and then the back of my neck would start to shake so bad that I, I literally thought that people thought I was having a seizure. I mean, I was so scared. I was so fearful of the clothes. So, you know, as, as I said before. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> Well, guess what? You know, just work harder at it, practice it more, do the things that you got to do to become good at it. So, yep. Uh, yep. And I I am assuming that when you took over some of these um, insurance companies as CEO, that you made them bigger. I did. More successful. Yep. Yep. So, uh, when I took over American Income Life, it was writing about 400 and about uh, 48 million. And when I retired, we were right at 250 million. Oh, my goodness. Salesforce from, um, from 1,100 salespeople to almost 8,000 salespeople. Wow. Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, I was fortunate. I think I was blessed. Um, but I was able to grow. I was able to grow companies because, you know, I understood what I believe are the four characteristics of a leader. And because of that, I was able to grow. What are those? Just out of curiosity, the four characteristics. Quickly, um, I think leaders are visionary. You know, they yep. can see further than the people that they're leading. I always say, listen, if you're a leader and you're not spending an hour of your day daydreaming, you know, you're not doing your job. So, so you know, you got to be able to see further. You have to have influence and, and you get influence two ways. One is by getting results. You know, people, you're not going to follow me if if what I'm showing you is failure. So you're going to show, you're going to follow me if I'm showing you how to succeed. Right. The other part of that is that you have to know that I care about you and not that I care about you because it looks good for me. Right. About you, your family, your success. And if you have both of those ingredients going, then you have influence and then people will follow you. And then third and fourth was you've got to have strong systems. You can't you can't have it where all of a sudden you're out of the picture and everything's falling down. Right. 
And the follow-up to that is don't have a system unless you're willing to inspect it. Mm. You know, people saying to you, well, you don't trust me. No, that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> what that has to do with it is I've got a system and I want to make sure that it's going right because I know if we follow the system that there's going to be success. You know, and I think if you have those four characteristics, then you got a good chance of leading people and, and having them have success. I, I I think that's huge. I think you have so much good advice to share with people. Um, Roger, tell us the name of your book. And when I when I make the video, I'll put up a cover. I can see it right behind you. <laughs> yeah, it's called The Most Unlikely Leader, An Unbelievable Journey from GED to CEO. That's huge. And then, and by the way, before I forget, um, very well done on your sobriety, because it's been how many years now? It's 35 years. Well done. I mean, very well done. I I have not experienced it, but I know that it isn't necessarily an easy thing. And so wow. you have, you are quite the success story. And you just started a podcast, did you say? No, no, no. no. Oh, you just been on podcasts. Ah, <laughs> uh, I thought you were, I thought you were talking that you had your own podcast. Fair enough. Well, Roger, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, best of luck with your book. It yeah. is available on Amazon for our listeners. And yeah. I will, it's called The Most Unlikely Leader by Roger Smith. And I will put up the picture and a link so that you can find it. And Roger, thank you. I just really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you so much. They can also go onto my website, rogersmith.me, and it has my bio and my social links, and, uh, and they can order it from there also. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the interview today with Roger Smith. I will put up a picture of his book, and I will, um, yeah, it'll say on there, the title and you can you can get it on Amazon. And I just love his approach to life. I mean, there is someone who, you know, really took a very energetic and entrepreneurial approach to life. And even though he became an addict, and even though he was a functioning addict, because I think sometimes people who are functioning addicts, I mean, the viewpoint can be why get clean and sober, I'm living my best life. But he did get clean and sober and he approached his recovery and sobriety with the same energy and elan vital, if you will, that he had approaching his addiction. And he's been super successful. Um, as I said in the bio, he's been CEO of three different huge insurance companies. So he is definitely a successful guy and has words of wisdom. You all have a great week. We are right in the midst of the holidays. You know, way back when we started this podcast, we, um, Jason, my co-host, and I used to talk about how even though the holidays are the absolute worst time to have addicts in your area or to be addicted, a lot of times people think they want to wait until New Year's to get their loved one into treatment, or they think that they don't want to get themselves into treatment until the New Year's. It's not a good decision. If you're addicted, get help right now. And if you have a loved one who's addicted, get them into treatment right now. We'll talk to you again next week with another interview. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. 
For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.